0: Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing now as we come to the reading of your word and and the preaching of it as well. We ask that you, um, through the vision given to Ezekiel, um, would give to us um, eyes of faith that we might see Jesus as um, the center of our lives, the center of our worship, and um, our true hope. We ask that you would help us to see this even in um, what is, uh, for many of us, a difficult passage. Um, Give us um, minds that are ready to attend to your word and to hear and to believe. We ask for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn our, our attention now to Ezekiel. Be reading two chapters this evening, 45 and 46. If you need to sit, that's fine. <clears throat> chapters 45 and 46. Um, to give you just a little bit of preparation, um, here Ezekiel's vision uh, continues, and he is given a vision um, again of the temple, as we've looked at before, but also the land surrounding it now. Um, including land that will belong to a, a prince, a king. He'll describe the duties of that king as well in relation to sacrifices and the um, calendar, we might say, um, and, and a few other things. And in this, as I said in my prayer, will um, Lord willing come to see um, Christ as the fulfillment of this temple and learn more about our relationship with the Lord as he saves us. So let's give our attention to God's word now. Ezekiel 45. When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long and 20,000 cubits broad. It shall be holy throughout its whole extent. Of this square plot of 500 by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary with 50 cubits for an open space around it. And from this measured district, you shall measure off a section of 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad, in which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister to him. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. Another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, shall be for the Levites, who minister at the temple as their possession for cities to live in. Alongside the portions set apart as the holy district, you shall assign for the property of the city an area of 5,000 cubits broad and 25,000 cubits long. It It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district of the property of the city." "'along the holy district and the property of the city "'on the west and on the east, "'corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions "'and extending from the western "'to the eastern boundary of the land. "'It is to be his property in Israel, "'and my princes shall no more oppress my people, "'but they shall let the house of Israel "'have the land according to their tribes. "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Enough, O princes of Israel. "'Put away violence and oppression.' and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. An ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, and the bath containing one-tenth of a homer, and the ephah one-tenth of a homer, and the homer shall be the standard measure. The shekels shall be twenty geras, twenty shekels plus twenty-five shekels, plus fifteen shekels, shall be your minna. This is the offering that you shall make. One-sixth of an ephah from each homer of wheat, and one-sixth of an ephah from each homer of barley. And as the fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath from each core. The core, like the homer, contains ten baths. And one sheep from every flock of two hundred, from the watering places of Israel for grain offering burnt offering, and peace offerings, to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel." "'Thus says the Lord God, "'In the first month, on the first day of the month, "'you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish "'and purify the sanctuary. "'The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering "'and put it on the doorposts of the temple, "'the four corners of the ledge of the altar, "'and the posts of the gate of the inner court. "'You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month "'for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance. "'So shall you make atonement for the temple.'" In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of Passover, and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering, and on the seven days of the festival he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish on each of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering." And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull, an ephah for each ram, and a hen of oil to each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, and for seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil. Thus says the Lord God, The gate of the inner court that faces the east shall be su- shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it shall be opened." And on the day of the new moon, it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from the outside and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offerings and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of the gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offering that the priest offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering with the ram shall be an ephah, and the grain offering with the lambs shall be as much as he is able, together with a hen of oil to each ephah. On the day of the new moon, he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish, and six lambs and a ram, which shall be without blemish." As a grain offering, he shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram and with the lambs as much as he is able, together with a hint of oil to each ephah. When the prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate, and he shall go out the same way. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feasts, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate, and he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by the way of the gate by which he answered, but each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them, and when they go out, he shall go out. At the feasts and the appointed festivals, the grain offering with a young bull shall be an ephah, and with a ram an ephah, and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with a hint of oil, to an ephah. When the prince provides a freewill offering, either a burnt offering or peace offerings, as a free will offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be open for him. And he shall offer his burnt offering or his peace offerings as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out, and after he has gone out, the gate shall be shut. You shall provide a lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it. And you shall provide a grain offering with it morning by morning one sixth of an ephah and one third of a hin of oil to moisten the flour and as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as an inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. Then he brought me to the entrance, which was at the side of the gate to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests, and behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, this is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so transmit holiness to the people. Then he brought me to the outer court, and led me around to the four corners of the court, and behold, in each corner of the court there was another court. In the four corners of the court were small rooms, 40 cubits long and 30 broad, and the four were the same size." On the inside, each, around each of the four courts, was a row of masonry, with hearths, hearths made at the bottom of the rows all around. Then he said to me, these are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> So I wonder what would happen if I handed out a quiz now and asked you to provide various details from the passage. My guess is that you would remember some and there would be others that you would not remember. (laughs) And that's because there's a lot of details here, isn't there? Very, very specific things in all kinds of of different ways, even if we were to have covered a smaller section um, of of the scripture here, I think uh, the result would be largely the same. Why so many details? What's going on here? How are we supposed to read this and understand it? I remember, um, I may be paraphrasing here, but a, a quote from Augustine that is maybe worth remembering at this point, where he says something like, Um, The Lord in his grace uh, provides the plainer and easier passages so that our hunger might be fed and the more difficult and challenging ones so that we might never be bored. (laughs) He sees in all of Scripture something to delight in, no matter how it initially affects him or his initial approach toward it, and I think that's a a really good attitude to have. As we come to this uh, passage of Scripture, how are we uh, to think about it? There are a couple of problems, um, or challenges rather, that people have faced with it. Um, One is that the instructions that are given here are different in many ways than the instructions given um, to Moses, and that we read in the Pentateuch. Obviously similarities, right, perhaps you heard um, language concerning the allotment of land, or um, the... Uh, um, You heard names about uh, the priests and sacrifices that sounded similar. Um, There's a lot that's similar that's going on here. The vision that Ezekiel is receiving comes in Old Testament terms. But at the same time, there's so many differences um, between the vision that he's seeing now in the land and the temple and what was of old. It's difficult to know um, if you take it as a, a program to follow, As a new thing to do, what would you do without disobeying what had been previously said? Um, uh, For example, um, the uh, the three major festivals are not here, only two of them, and they're in different places. Um, the, test, the, the temple itself is enlarged, the whole allotment of the land of the tribes. Perhaps if you look in the back of your Bibles and you see uh, tribal allotments, perhaps in the time of David or something like that, you see all the different kind of pieces. This is different. It's a big square, and there's these very rectangular parts. How is that supposed to work? Where are people supposed to go? How are they supposed to live? Ian Duguid, in his commentary, tells a story about a rabbi um, known in history as Hananiah Ben-Hezekiah, who, um, according to the accounts, went into his attic and burned 300 barrels of oil in his lamp until he felt satisfied that he had reconciled all of the things that we see in this vision with the Pentateuch. Um, Sadly... That work is lost to history, and uh, we don't have that. Uh, many other people simply give up and say, these can't be reconciled, and, but then aren't sure what to do with it after that. Um, some, in more modern times, dispensationalists have sought to see this as, well, yes, the establishment of the temple in the millennium, as they would refer to it as. The problem, one of the major problems with that is that these sacrifices here are offered for atonement. And the scriptures, the New Testament is really, really clear, Hebrews 10, that Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice once and for all, fulfilling perfectly the needs of atonement forever. So how are we supposed to look at this? How are we supposed to think about it? As I mentioned before, I do agree that the right way to think about this is in terms of a vision. It's not a program that Israel is to follow exactly, although it comes in the form of of, legal, of a legal code of legislation and commands. Why might it come in that form? It's a good question, and I may not have the answer, but I, I'd like to make a suggestion if you think from a literary point of view or the perspective of, of, let's say, just the Holy Spirit seeking to communicate what this all would look like, one option you would have is to tell a story, right? Show what it looks like as time moves forward, right? Um, This happened and then this happened. The prince went and he did this on this day and then this happened the next day and then seven months later there was another festival and this is where people lived and you would tell it in the form of a a narrative. Another option is to tell it in the form of legislation which in some ways has its advantages though maybe it's not as exciting or interesting to us. It has the advantage of giving us everything at once Right When you have the legislation of a society of a, 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 that's depicted in terms of its sacrifices, its calendar, its code, who lives where, what the classes are, you don't have to wait for it all to unfold. It's compact, it's dense, right? It, you get it all at once. By, and then by studying that law and by understanding the picture that's being presented there, you get a sense of what is being communicated, what, what the vision is for this society, without having to name particular people. Which, of course, God could figure out how to do. um, But the legislation, I'm saying, has some advantages for communicating communicating a picture. Because it gives to us a lot all at once. What does that picture tell us? As we study these laws, as we consider the things that that come to us in this vision... What is it God is trying to communicate to his people? Well, there's a few things. The first is that he is holy, a message that we have had driven home over and over and over again in the book of Ezekiel. That God is making sure that his name shall be known, that no one will mistake him for who he is. Like the temple, when we went through the various um, characteristics of it as it's outlined in the vision, the land now around the temple is similar in that the temple is the focal spot of the whole land. With this square, this, this square in the middle of the land, um, now is not just the focal point of an area, but of the whole country. To help you picture it a little bit, you might think of. Um, You might imagine a sports field, but instead of a rectangle, imagine a square, right? And so in the middle of that field, if it was a basketball court, right, this is where you'd have a jump ball at the beginning. If it was a football field, right, this is where you do your coin toss, right there, center field, right? Except again, imagine a square. At the center of that square is this square, which is the temple. It's the center of the whole land. Right and around on either side of that, um, on either side of that square, you have uh, the priests. The priests. You know, sort of on one half of the field, you might say, you have uh, the Levites, and on the other half, you have uh, the priests, um, the, the Zadokites, Zadok and his, Zadok and his sons. That's what you have. And then in the arena, you might say, surrounding that field, you have the prince and his tribe, or not his tribe, but his lands on the east and the west side. And then on the north and the south, on the north you have the various tribes of Israel, also on the south. The south is just a little different, though, that between, so remember you go to the center, and I'll move from center to south. In the center you have the temple, below that you have the priests, Below that, you have some land and what's called a city. And then below that, you have some more tribes. And so essentially, what you have is you go and you have the focuses on the temple. We might call this the land of Emmanuel. Why? Emmanuel means God with us, right? And there is God right in the center, the most important spot. All the activity, everything that's important revolves around that. And out from there, you have these levels of holiness, levels in which access is restricted. You remember when we talked about the temple and all the doors and the access points and all the rules surrounding that? It's similar here. Not just anybody lives near the temple, and not the prince anymore, which we'll come to in a minute. Before, in the time of Solomon and David, the capital or the kingdom complex, or, or rather the king's uh, quarters and, and house are right next to the temple. Here it's separated. The, t- the king, the prince, gets moved outside and moved in toward the center are the Levites and the priests right surrounding the temple. The prince still has a, a, a pride of place, we might say, among the peoples. He has his own land on the, on the east and on the west side of, the, of this area. But his access is still restricted. He has these special moments where he is able to go on the east side on certain festivals. He's able to go to the east side, but only a little bit. The people of Israel can only come to the gate when that gate is open. But the prince, he can go inside the gate, but he can't go any further. I believe it's eight steps. Uh, that threshold entrance. He's able to go about eight steps in, and then there's this long corridor down, which he would have to look at, I think 90 feet. So as he looks down this corridor, it's not like he can just see everything. He goes inside the gate, and he stops. He is kept away from uh, the the holy and most holy things, even though he has this, this little bit of special access. The tribes on the north and on the south they can come through this area, but they are only led uh, by the prince. They must always go with the prince. And they never go in and out the same way. It says that if they come from the north, you go straight through, no stop, and all the way to the south. And if you come from the south, you go straight through, no stop, and all the way to the north. And then you walk around, I suppose. That's what you would do next. This big area, this big land, in all of it, this is being, um, this is being emphasized. God's presence is central. And that, I would tell you tonight, is a picture of our salvation. That's what's meant here. Remember, the people of Israel are in exile. They've disobeyed. They've come under the judgment and the wrath of God. What's the hope that is left for them? What's life going to be like? What's salvation under the new covenant and the Spirit is poured out? What will that mean? What will it look like? How are they to understand it? To put it another, in a more personal way, how are we to understand our own salvation in the new covenant, what God has done? And one of the answers to that is that he is central. He's the king. He's number one. He's at the center of it all in all of his holiness, in all of his glory. And everything about our life with him is aligned to that point. As you come to the sin offerings and guilt offerings and all of these sorts of things, we are reminded of a second and important point, that our access to the Lord, our presence with the Lord, our obedience to the Lord only happens through sacrifice. Only happens when God provides for us a means of atonement, of having our sins forgiven, of coming close to him, of being purified. We can't even give our obedience to him apart from his sacrifice and his atoning work. You can't even come and offer anything unless it's first sanctified, unless it's first purified. And this, of course, has to be done by the work of God. In this vision, we see God's role elevated even more than it was under Moses. The centrality of God, not that he was any less central, but he is being magnified in new ways. His holiness, his glory, his power, and his grace towards us, it's all being magnified. What is being downgraded is the monarchy. The monarchy no longer is allowed to take lands or make decisions uh, about, where, um, some, uh, about this land or that land. They have their own land. The prince has his own land and it must maintain and stay with the prince. Do you remember this section? He says to the prince that the prince shall have these lands and it can only go to his son's. And if, it gives it, if he gives it as a reward to a servant, it gets returned back to his family um, uh, upon the year of, of Jubilee. Now that might seem like a good deal at first, right? You're like, wow, you get to give somebody a reward and then you get it back, right? <laughs> How is that a protection for anybody? Um, but the point is this, uh, the kings would often use lands as a way to increase their power, Taking, like, for example, Naboth's vineyard, taking lands from other people and then giving them to their favored ones and and that sort of thing. None of that's allowed here. And we know that not only from the history of the kings, but also from the Lord's explicit commands where he says, enough, princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression, execute justice, cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord. The prince has his land, and his family has his land, and that's it. No more. You are not the ultimate king. You are a vassal, an under-shepherd, an under-ruler, and that's where you shall stay. There is a downgrading of the monarchy as there is an increase in God's uh, rule and his holiness. In all of these things, we see how the temple points us uh, to our Savior. When, we, when the Lamb of God, when Jesus comes into the world, he comes to make atonement for us, the New Testament tells us. He comes to bring us close to God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, templing, tabernac- tabernacling with us. He comes to give uh, his life as a ransom for many. He comes to save us from our sins and draw us close to God. He comes to pay our debts, uh, to reconcile us and bring us into communion with him. This Old Testament picture in another ways of the temple is a way of us understanding better who our Lord and Savior is. When Jesus came into the world, he magnified God and he brought us close to him. He did that, of course, by taking um, man, a human flesh in on himself, and taking on humanity while never giving up his divinity. How closer could man and God be than in Jesus Christ himself? And the scriptures tell us that he is our representative. On the one hand, he is the prince who leads us into the temple, into the holy places. He's the one who goes before us and sacrifices on our behalf. He's the one who offers worship uh, to God and leads us in these ways. And he's also God, who receives this worship, who deserves all of it, who sits on the throne and is in, and, and is enthroned with the temple, even as his footstool. And so as we... Consider this picture, and as we consider our Savior, I hope that you find encouragement in these things. These Old Testament pictures and the, it, with, re, with relation to the holiness of God and the work of Christ to make us holy and bring us into holiness uh, should strengthen our faith, because ultimately they weren't just wishful pictures and dreams and hopes of some possible reality, but they came true. It came true and were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is now sitting at the right hand of of God, his Father, and rules and intercedes for us and calls us into the heavenly places. This is why our worship, as one application of this, is all centered in him. There's no access apart from him. There's no life apart from him. There's no holiness apart from him. If you take the temple out of this picture, out of this vision of Ezekiel, there's no picture anymore. Everything is centered around it. It's the the core, the, 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 the center of the cell. Life stops if that stops. This is who our Jesus is. This is who our life is in him. And so my encouragement to you this evening is if you desire closeness with God, communion with God, the forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation, joy and peace in the life that God has promised, find it in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the salvation of our sins. And we thank you for revealing through your spirit this vision that we might come to know you and and trust you more, that we might come to see our our lack of holiness um, and the need we have uh, to be brought into communion with Almighty God. We see the need for atonement. We see the need for the sacrifice for sin. We see the need that, we're, that, uh, uh, that all of our lives would be centered around and consumed by the delight and joy of worshiping you. As we look to the visions that John has in heaven, we are reminded of these things yet again. Our life um, now and in the age to come ought to be and will be centered wholly around you and your, your holiness. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a bigger vision for you, a bigger understanding and appreciation of your place in our lives and in the world that you are are working in even today. And Lord, we look for that kingdom to be revealed in its glory. Until then, help us to to look forward to those things through visions such as this. Help us to see and the Uh, images here and in the parables of Jesus and the explanations of the Apostle Paul and Peter and others, who you are and what you are doing and what you have done. We ask that you would increase our faith in you, that you would call us to repentance and to hope and to love. We ask that you would would increase um, your own glory and your greatness in our lives and draw us into that even as we set down our own um, sinful ambitions. Teach us to do these things and rule in us completely, O Lord. Do so by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.